Well, good morning, church. And uh, obviously, good morning to those who are joining us online. Was anybody distracted by Greg's socks? I was a little bit distracted. He's into those really weird socks. Hey, I just want to bring greetings from you. I've been suffering for the Lord in Florida this week. It's been rough. It was like 75 and sunny. That, you know what, that, this is much better. Snow, ice, so much better. Uh, so good to be with you today. So glad to be with you. And so glad that those who are joining us online can be with us today. It, it's a day for many people, I'm sure. Between COVID outbreaks and, and ISIS, though, you're thinking maybe we'll be in today. So we're together through the word of God, and it's my joy to be with you. So uh, we're in John 18, and as we continue in our time of worship, we want to bring ourselves back into the gospel because we've been marching through the whole gospel. The gospel is a narrative. It's a story. It's history. And in it, we see Jesus, and it moves us. It changes our hearts. We come to know him personally. And so it's important to walk with him through this difficult time. These are not fun chapters for us to, to spend time in, but it happened. It's history, and it's very, very important. So we're in the 18th chapter. Jesus has recently been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been brought to the, the home of the high priest. He's currently being interviewed by Annas. We looked at that last week. But at the very same time, Peter, we're going to zoom in on Peter, is in the courtyard of the high priest. And uh, we kind of know where that's going to go, right? Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times on this evening. And he did. So we're going to read about that, and we'll talk about it a little bit. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. Wherever you happen to be, please join us as we read out loud the Word of God from chapter 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now Simon was standing, warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Thank you. Please be seated. Lord, as we gather today uh, here in this wonderful sanctuary, as well as where all the people are gathered today with our online community, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. This is a hard story, and we find ourselves often in it. But I pray that we would learn from it, that we would come to understand your grace, your infinite grace, even as it applies to those who have failed miserably. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my message today is simply entitled, Peter's Denial. And uh, three subheadings, Peter and the other disciple, the three denials and lessons to be learned. First, Peter and the other disciple. You know, all four accounts of, of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all tell this story. And the synoptic specifically reveals something that's 
you know, kind of sad, but Jesus had predicted it. Remember Jesus said, you will all go to your own homes. You will all leave me and I will be alone. Matthew, Mark, and Luke acknowledge they all fled. When Jesus was arrested, they all fled, except for one. All four Gospels agree that Peter did not flee. He stayed. And so before we spend the rest of the sermon saying, oh, Peter, (laughs) we need to remember Peter loved Jesus. He was a bona fide Jesus follower. You cut him, he bled Christ. He loved Jesus with all of his heart. And it's his intent to follow Jesus no matter what. And, And we have to acknowledge when everyone else fled, Peter stayed. He continued to follow Jesus and follow him to the home of the high priest. Now, according to John's gospel, Peter was not the only one. There was another uh, the other, another disciple who followed Jesus and the arresting group to the high priest's house. So the text just reads, Simon Peter followed Jesus, as so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Let me ask you a question. Who is the other disciple? We all think it's John, probably is. That's really where most scholars land. But there's a challenge with us saying immediately that it's John, right? Because did you notice the descriptor of the other disciple? He was known by the high priest. Actually, he says it twice for emphasis, right? He was known by the high priest. John was the brother of James. They were the sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen from a fisherman's family. In Capernaum, most likely the Sea of Galilee, three hour—I mean, a thirty hours. It's a three-day walk from where John and his family lived into Jerusalem to the high priest's house. How would John know the high priest or be known by the high priest? That is a big enough question and a hard enough question to where some scholars would say, "Yeah, the other disciples probably not John." Some would say it could have easily been Nicodemus. Right, The great teacher of Israel. We know that Nicodemus is partial to Jesus. Eventually he becomes a disciple of Jesus. Uh, could have been Joseph of Arimathea, who was on the council. He was a member of the, San- a member of the Sanhedrin. He would have had access to come and go uh, at the high priest's house. So there's, there's possibilities. But then we ask the question, well, why wouldn't John just say it was Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea? I mean, he, he's mentioned those two men by name before. Why would he just say another disciple. And then then some would theorize, well, it could have been actually a member of of the high priest staff or a member of his family who was a secret follower of Jesus and who had access. But it was still risky enough that John did not want to divulge their identity when he wrote the gospel. Uh, We don't know. Now, there is one reasonable uh, narrative as to how maybe it was John. And this is interesting. So scholars go back, you know, the, every single word of the New Testament has been poured over every single word. So if you go back to Mark's account of Jesus when he calls James and John the sons of Zebedee, it says that James and John left their father with the hired servants. Well, j- just that one little phrase, with the hired servants, leads some scholars to say, okay, Zebedee must have been very successful. He had a, he, this is a significant fishing industry, you know. And fish was a huge staple in the ancient world. Still is all over the world. Fish is a big deal. Don't get me distracted. So 
So, so salted fish in particular would have been a staple in everyone's family, right? This is a fishing industry. Now, here's another interesting note. According to, you know, Josephus and other, you know, ancient sources, the high priest was like the king of DoorDash, all right? He, he was, his job was to stay pure and undefiled, and so he was famous for having everything delivered to his house. So, you just put the clues together. Here you got a successful fishing industry. The, the owner of the industry sends one of his own sons to be the guy who delivers salted fish to the high priest, right? That would make sense. Jerusalem would be the center of commerce in some degree. It's the largest city uh, there in, in Israel. And, and it would make sense potentially that John might have been that guy who delivered salt fish to the high priest. He'd been doing it for years. He knew the servants. He knew the ins and outs. And that's why he can get in. I mean, I like that theory because I like fishing. We can just say it. Uh, so we're going to call this other disciple John. We're going to refer to him as such. Truthfully, we don't know. It could have been somebody else, uh, as I mentioned to you. But we'll just go with John for now. All right. Let's look at the, at the denials. Now, this is painful, but it's most important for us, I think, to come to the story trying to take on Peter's perspective. I mean, it's easy to poop on Peter, right? But let's, let's not jump to the end. Peter loves Jesus, but it has not been a good night for him. Right? They're at the dinner table in John 13, and Jesus drops the bomb. I'm leaving. I'm going. You can't come where I'm going. Peter's distraught. He's committed his whole life to follow Jesus. And he's like, that's not going to happen. Wherever you go, I'm going. Where are you going? Wherever you go. I mean, I would die for you. I'd give my life. I'd lay down my life for you. (laughs) Remember this? And Jesus says, would you, Peter? Would you lay down your life for me? I tell you, you will deny me three times before the cock crows. Well, you know, the whole time ever since then, Peter's been like, no, I'm not. I don't know what he's thinking. I am loyal. I am never going to deny Jesus. I mean, it was a horribly shameful, like, I mean, dishonoring, horrible, humiliating thing for Jesus to say to him in front of all the disciples. So he's pretty determined. I am not going to, I mean, I would be, wouldn't you? Right? So what happens? We fast forward. We get to the garden. And here comes, you know, a hundred plus soldiers with clubs and swords and, and the whole deal to arrest Jesus. And Peter, in all of his enthusiasm, whips out his sword and takes a shot. At the, as the servant of the high priest who ducks, he cuts off his ear. Malchus, remember the story? Is that a man who sounds like he's denying Jesus? No. From all casual observation, we say, that guy is loyal. He's gung-ho. He's misguided. You know, one man against hundreds. But it could even be a reflection of Peter's faith. I'm going to pull a sword, and Jesus is going to go, <laughs> right? I mean, a man who can calm the storm with his hand. And yet, what happens? Jesus rebukes him, says, Peter, stop. Put your sword away. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. Should I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And then he heals the man, the enemy. This all has to be very confusing for Peter, who's trying to be loyal. I mean, you can't be much more loyal than taking on an entire army like with one sword, right? I mean, and yet he's rebuked by Jesus. And again, he's humiliated. But still, even when all the other disciples flee, he's determined, I'm not going to leave. And it's like, you know, it's like Maverick. I'm not going to leave my wingman, right? Never mind. Top gun. 
It's this idea. He's, he's not going to leave. He's going he's gonna to stay. He's going to continue to pursue Jesus, and he doesn't even know what he's going to do. So he follows from a distance, and there's the other disciple who's with him. We're going to call him John. And they get to the gate that leads into the high priest's property. And there's a, there's a servant girl there, and her job is to scream, right? Or to notify the guard if anyone tries to trespass. John's like, hey, Pete, I got this. I know these people. He goes in. He checks out the scene. Peter's out there freezing in the cold. He comes back. He says, all right, I'm going to introduce you to the servant girl. We're going to get you into the courtyard. And I'll go in, and I'll try to figure out what's going on. But before they can even get by the servant girl, she, uh, she looks at Peter, and she says, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? This is a confusing question. Because, I mean, it kind of suggests that she knows that John, or whoever the other disciple is, is a disciple, a follower of Jesus. But she asked the question to Peter, and for whatever reason, Peter's completely caught off guard. Like, he just did not anticipate this was going to happen. All he's thinking is, i got to get in there. And this, this servant girl is standing in the way of me getting to where I need to go. And it's really none of her business anyways. And he just thinks for the greater good, I think, I mean, I feel like this is where Peter's is. <laughs> like, for the greater good, for me to be able to get to where I need to go, I'm just going to say no. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not, I'm not. He just denies it. He didn't want any conflict or confusion with this servant girl. I kind of think you probably in the back of his mind is like, that's none of your business, servant girl. <laughs> so now Peter hunkers down in the dark corner of the courtyard. He's trying to be inconspicuous. He's trying to watch you know, what's happening inside the house there, if he can get a, a line of sight. Um, now, what is he thinking? What is he, what is he thinking he's going to do? You know, I mean, Peter probably had some pretty grandiose ideas of what he could do, right? He, he understands that they're going to be looking for witnesses. They're, that's part of the judicial system. They're going to be looking for witnesses. And he's, maybe he's thinking, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to be a witness. I'm going to go toe-to-toe with the high priest and the whole Sanhedrin. I'm going to, like, testify for Jesus. I don't know. Maybe that's what he's thinking. Maybe he's, maybe he's thinking, if things get too dicey, I'm going to go get my man out of there. I'm going to pull his sword again. I don't know. My guess is Peter has no plan whatsoever. You know, he, he, he's done nothing but follow Jesus for three years. He's just following him. He just wants to be close to him. He, this is all very disillusioning, and all he knows to do is to follow and stay as close to Jesus as possible. I suspect that's probably mostly what's going on. Now, all the gospel accounts make it really obvious that it was very cold on this night. It's cold. And... Uh, the resting party, you know, has gone into the house and all the stuff's going on in there. Well, all the other little people, right? The servants and the soldiers, they're all standing out in the courtyard saying, well, we're really not sure what we're supposed to be doing now, but we're just going to wait for orders. And they're cold. And Peter's cold. I don't know if you've ever been cold. You may have had an opportunity to experience that recently. Uh, but the thing that makes you colder is watching other people get warmer. Like, that's just painful. Right? So you're freezing cold. You're watching other people stand around a fire like, that ain't right. I, Peter wants to get warm. He's just drawn by the fire. He's cold. He doesn't know what to do. And so he starts inching his way over. He's getting over there so where he can get warmed up. And before long, you know, 
he's got this cloak of anonymity. He thinks he could just remain anonymous and warm his hand at the enemy's fire. And once again, he's just shocked when suddenly somebody says, Hey, aren't you, aren't you one of his disciples? And he panics. He, you know, he just doesn't want, he doesn't want to get into it with all these people. It's, he doesn't know what would happen. They might kick him out. He's still trying to figure out what's going on with Jesus. And, and he just feels you know, like the best thing for me to do here is just to deny that I'm associated with Jesus. And he says in verse 25, I'm not. And of course, then the most horrific thing happens is actually one of the relatives of Malchus, who just cut his ear off, who was actually there in the garden, looks a little closer to the fire and says, hey, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Now there's probably just a sheer amount of fear that grabs Peter when all these soldiers and the officers recognize that he's the guy with the knife who just cut off this his brother's ear. And, and he denies it. He says, no, I, he denied it. And again, verse 27, and once, at once, a rooster crowed. Right? Boom, there it is, three times. So we're going to get to unpacking that in a minute. But I, I want to touch on one little note. This is all bonus material. So we all know about the rooster crows. Like, this has been a big deal. In fact, even in some of the, like, traditional literature around the church, you know, people said that people would just go around and, <laughs> and crow like a rooster in front of Peter just to antagonize them. We've all thought about the rooster crowing as a big deal. Well, William Barclay, who's the most fascinating New Testament scholar, he always seems to come up with the most interesting information. According to him, Jewish ritual law made it illegal to own a rooster in Jerusalem. How many of you knew that? See, you cannot leave here today and say, I didn't learn a thing. You just did. Well, I, that's interesting, and it makes the story confusing. If there were no roosters, then how did we hear the rooster crow? And Now, don't panic, because we have no idea if that rule was enforced, or the Romans might have had all their own roosters and say, we don't care about your Jewish laws. This is the most reliable ancient history that we have of the ancient world of Jerusalem and Israel. So everything historically we find in the New Testament has been proven true. There's no reason for us to believe that you know, this isn't perfect evidence that there were roosters, right? But there's one interesting thing that might give us an alternative explanation. You might find this interesting too. So according to Barclay, the Roman guard divided the evening watch into four watches, right? So you had, you had 6 to 9 p.m., 9 to midnight, midnight to 3, and then 3 to 6 a.m. But they wouldn't ask the soldiers to stay that whole time. There was a change in the guard at 3 a.m. At 3 a.m., the, the Romans would just, you'd hear the trumpet blast all throughout the city. And that trumpet blast had a name. It was called Galicinium in the Latin. It was called Electrophonia in the Greek. And the literal translation was cock crow. <laughs> so you go back to what Jesus said, I tell you before the cock crow, you will deny me three times. It's very possible that Jesus was referring to the trumpet blast of the change of the guard, which would give us a time stamp on this night that we're at 3 a.m. Isn't that interesting? Could have just been a bird. Could have been the cock crow of the trumpet call. But either way, it just gives us some historical context. That's all free. Okay, lessons to be learned. I have five quick lessons, but before we get to the lessons, I want to point out something. If you're, if you're a skeptic, if you're like, ah, you know, I don't really know if I can believe these stories... Uh, you know, you've heard people say the Bible is just myth and legend and so on. 
I just want to point out something to you. This is really interesting. I think it might help your faith in some ways. I think we can all agree that this story is terrible marketing for Christianity. All right? I mean, remember that in the first century church, G, uh, Peter was the most esteemed leader of, of the first century church. And here we have a story in all four gospel accounts of him completely dropping the ball, just denying Jesus flat out, it, it, you know, going out into the courtyard and weeping according to the synoptic accounts. This is not a flattering man story. In fact, a New Testament uh, scholar Frederick Bruner writes, this kind of information meets what is called the criterion of embarrassment in historical investigation. That's actually a thing. You see, a lot of smart people have thought about this for a long time, people of every field of study. And there's a particular mm, test that's applied to any ancient claims of history. Multiple tests. So it's the source, you know, how many sources and how widely was it distributed and how closely was it dated to the time of the events. But one of the tests is this one, this embarrassment criteria, right? Are there things there that are just embarrassing? That history would say these things happen, but legend and myth would say they never happen, right? Like we just don't talk badly about the leaders and the heroes of myth and legend. We don't, we don't include these kind of stories. This is so embarrassing. It actually falls in a genre all by itself. Uh, Dr. Eric Auerbach was a German philologist and comparative scholar and critic of literature. In his classic work entitled Mimesis, the Representation of Reality in Western Literature, I'm sure you all want to go out and read that book. But here's what he writes, a very nerdy guy, but very well read. He says, a scene like Peter's denial fits into no antique genre. It is too serious for comedy too contemporary and everyday for tragedy, politically too insignificant for history, and the form which it was given is one of such immediacy that its like does not exist in the literature of antiquity. Do you hear what he's saying? Like, there is no genre for this story. And you're like, well, it's history, right? Well, not in the genre of ancient history. Ancient history was written by ancient historians. Ancient historians were paid by emperors to, to make political boasts and claims about how great the king was, right? That's ancient history. That's generally how we get ancient history. It doesn't, doesn't have any of the political overtones. It, it, it's politically insignificant. So he says there's no genre for this, which leads us where? It just happened, right? It's historical reportage. It's just the testimony of people who were there. Maybe Peter's own testimony. It happened. In an honor culture, it's so dishonoring. This would never be found in myth and legend. So let that be an encouragement to you of the historicity and the reliability of the New Testament. These are the very things that we look for to determine that kind of reliability. And this is a smoking gun. There's many of them, but this is one of them. All right. A couple quick lessons, and then we'll be done. First of all, we need to acknowledge that there are two kinds of failing, <laughs> probably more than two, but at least two, when it comes to our faith. We can fail from cowardice, or we can fail from overconfidence, right? And you see both in this story. The, the disciples flee, the most of them. They're, they're cowardly when it matters most. They're, fair, they're afraid, self-preservation. Uh, they're worried about their family. They flee to their own homes. And then you have Peter whose failure is on a different way. He, he, he's failing in this space of just being overconfident. He's just overconfident. That's just part. And it's interesting because when we first meet Peter, he says, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. 
But Christ has so brought him in and so empowered him that he has kind of gotten a little full of himself, even to the point where he rebukes Jesus. You know, he disagrees with him. He says, that'll never happen. He makes promises he can't keep. But what you really, both of these paths lead to the same resolution, which is whether you're a coward, which some of us are, we're just afraid, or we're a little overconfident and a bit of controlling, at the end of the day, we need to trust Jesus. You know, being a disciple is, is to walk without knowing where we are going, but trusting that Jesus knows exactly where he's going. So if you're afraid, we keep walking. If you're frustrated because you can't control everything, keep walking. You know, in the end, we need to trust what Jesus knows more than what we know, right? And, and that's the resolution to this, and we'll see that. But right now, we're seeing both kinds of failure. That just happens. It happens in the church. happens with all of us. So it's always good to be able to identify with people in the text. Many of us can relate with the fear. Some of us can relate with the overconfidence. All right. Secondly, there's a danger of warming our hands at the enemy's fire. I know that's just a picture, but it's a good metaphor, right? I mean, Peter is warming his hands at the enemy's fire. He's counting on the fact that he can remain anonymous, that he can benefit from the enemy's fire without being identified as a Jesus follower. I think a lot of us are actually kind of in this place, right? We just try to blend in. And if we, we feel like we can just kind of blend in, we can warm our hands at cover fire, I can be a secret Christian. But we need to learn from Peter because what happens is the longer we stay at that fire, the more likely we are to deny our association with Jesus. The more we kind of begin to lose our identity or at least our, our confidence in Christ. And uh, I think that happens quite a bit. So am I saying we should not be involved with the unredeemed world out there? Not at all. Not Of course not. We are called to be in the world but not of the world, right? But when your faith grows cold, you warm your hands, not at the culture's fire, but in the fire of Christian community. This is the very heart of worship. We come and we restore our souls. We feel the Holy Spirit. We worship God together. We get encouraged in being in Christian community. And then we go back out into the cold. We get out there and we bear witness. But if your faith grows cold, don't warm your hands at the cultural fire. Come back to Christian community. Come back into worship. Come back into that place where your faith can be encouraged. Uh, because we're going to need that. It's not going to get any easier to stand for Christ in the years to come. Amen? So be careful where you're warming your hands. Uh, Another lesson is to deny the Lord's church is to deny Jesus himself. This is a hard lesson. But I just appeal to you. Remember when, when Paul has been persecuting the church and Jesus, you know, the risen Christ, confronts him on the road to Damascus? Remember what he says? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because to, per- to persecute the church is equivalent to persecute Jesus. N- notice the question, according to John's gospel, the question was, aren't you one of his disciples? Three times Peter said no. But I don't think Peter ever thought that he denied Jesus. I, th- I think it's only when the cock crows that he's aware of the fact of what, what have I just done? Because here's what a lot of us do, is we parse out, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. 
I, I, I'm a Christian, but I just, I don't really think, you know, like the whole being part of a local church, like I just don't think that's that big of a deal. It's not really, and really the church is kind of messed up. And so we disassociate our love for Jesus and our engagement with the church. But I want you to see, biblically, it's consistent that, that to diss the church is to diss Jesus. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. Why? Well, because what is the church? The church is the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. One cannot love the head and hate the body. Right? This is the bride of Christ. Why do we love the bride of Christ? Because she's always pretty? Because she's always right and always perfect without blemish? No. We love the bride because Jesus loves the bride. And I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. You're sitting here and you're watching today. And I get that. But I can tell you, many of us have a very immature concept of the local church. We get very disillusioned. Things don't go our way. We don't get our needs met. Maybe there's a pastor who, you know, falls or sins or does something wrong. And we get so disillusioned, we walk right out the door. But you'd still say you're a Christian. You'd still say, I still love Christ. Well, listen. Of course that pastor fell. Of course people hurt your feelings. You see, if there was no major epic failure story in the New Testament, we'd say, that's wrong, that should never happen. But here we have Peter, the most faithful of all disciples in the history of the world, and he falls flat on his face. I don't know a senior pastor anywhere in this city who's more faithful than the Apostle Peter, do you? No. And we all have this idyllic notion of a church that's just going to be perfect without flaw. Let me tell you something. Don't go there or you're going to screw that up. Right? We're all pretty messed up people. And the body of Christ is messy. But she's beautiful. She's beautiful to Jesus. And he has called us to be part of that body of Christ. To endure. To dig in. To be the church. And that's going to require us to endure some hard and disillusioning things, just like Peter, just like the disciples, learning about this story. But Jesus redeemed that, as we'll see. Keep that in mind. I want to come back to our failure to publicly identify with Christ. There's a great quote here, and I just want to, it's not really a fourth point. It's really pulling on the, on, on, on warming our hands at the culture fire. But I, I just want to come back to this for a minute. Bruce Milne writes, how many Christians live with a continual sense of failure because of inability or unwillingness to stand clearly for Christ in their public lives? Like Peter, we find ourselves drawn step by step into ever deeper compromise until existence is a continuous denial and worship with God's people on a Sunday instead of renewing and invigorating us serves only to underline the hypocrisy of our lives. I flinched when I read that. I don't know about you. That, that's like, that's what happens, right? It, it doesn't happen overnight. It happens by degree. We just make little concessions. We continue to deny Christ a little bit here and a little bit there. We're not willing to be seen and, and take a stand. We, we're just trying to toe that line. But what happens over time is we just become buried in our, in our own shame. And we walk into the church and we feel like hypocrites. Like, I shouldn't even be here. 
And that happens. I, I see that happen a lot. There's a lot of reasons that why people end up, you know, just dropping away from the church. So this, this call to, to stand and to bear witness that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, even if it's costly, it actually fuels your faith. But many of us have lived enough life of compromise, you know, that we're just, we're kind of buried in that. And that's where we find Peter. Now, Peter didn't live a long life. This is kind of a microwave version of a story that can happen in a human life over many, many years. But Peter's in that place. He never thought he would be the guy to deny Jesus. And the synoptic gospels show a very emotional scene where he, is, he, he leaves the courtyard and he goes outside and he weeps. There's even a moment where as Jesus is escorted from Annas to, to go see Caiaphas that, that he looks at Peter. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's a horrible situation. But here's my fifth and final point. And I really want you to, this is like the most important thing I'm going to say. Peter's failure did not surprise Jesus. You have to remember this. Remember, go back to, you know, Luke's gospel, chapter 22, 31, 32. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Remember that? This did not surprise Jesus. In fact, here's the truth. Jesus lets us fail. He lets us fail. And really from that text, we almost have to conclude Jesus allowed Peter to be sifted like wheat by Satan. He allowed it. Now that's a tough teaching, but it's in the text and it's really relevant. Why? Because Jesus is not sitting there shaking his head at Peter saying, you're pathetic. I'm so disappointed in you. Jesus never says that to his disciples. He's not surprised. He's not disillusioned. He's more like just resigned to this needs to happen. Peter's going to have to fall. He's going to, he's going to get sifted. And it's not going to be any fun. But I have prayed for you. This is what Jesus does now as he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He prays. He intercedes. He allows things to happen. But we're not going through that alone. And it's not surprising God. It's not surprising Jesus. He's prayed. And he knows you're going to turn back. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. The Peter who will be, the Peter of Acts 2, is never going to be that guy if he is not the Peter of John 18. He's going to be obnoxious. He's going to be overconfident. It's going to be all about, you know, Peter. He, this, this fall, this, this dark night of the soul is kind of needs to happen for Peter. Needs to happen for most Christian leaders, by the way. I, I, many of you know my story. I was, like, you know, from age 14 to 25, I was like the Peter, right? I literally was. I mean, I felt called to be in ministry when I was nine. I preached my first sermon when I was 16. I was voted most likely to be a pastor in my graduating class at Wake Forest. I just made that up. But truthfully, I mean, that was me. And I, I, I had zeal without knowledge. I had enthusiasm, but very little humility. And that dark night of the soul was coming. I had no idea. But it, it found me. It found me in the summer of my senior year at Princeton Theological Seminary. And it was devastating. I lost my faith. 
I lost my way. I was a 25-year-old ministerial student who didn't know that I even believed in God or didn't know what I believed in God, didn't know what I believed about Scripture. I was tossed about in a Bermuda Triangle of Doubt, and it affected every aspect of my life, from my relationships to my morality to even my desire to live. It was a horrible time. I would not wish it upon anybody. Like Peter, I found myself in the darkness, crushed by my failure to be faithful to Jesus, and I wasn't even sure what to do. I mean, it was not a good time. But I can tell you that in the fall of that year, after I cried out to God in a class, at the end of class, saying, we need to meet or I'm done. I don't have anything left. Fifteen minutes later, in the Princess Seminary Chapel, I had an encounter with the risen Lord. He showed up. And he redeemed me. I understood that he loved me not for what I could do for him or because of my striving, but because he died for me and I was accepted and forgiven in Christ by pure grace. And I didn't deserve to be. I deserved hell. I knew that. And it changed my life. It changed who I was. It changed my whole concept of ministry. I became a very humble person who knew that I didn't know, but he does. That I've got nothing, he's got everything. That I'm not very lovable, but he loved me. <laughs> and that, that became my whole platform for moving into the rest of my ministry. Jim West, apart from the dark night of the soul, would be every bit as obnoxious, if not more so, than Peter. Not that I'm not obnoxious, I know. We can talk about that later. The point is, this is still happening. It's still happening. People go through dark nights of soul. You might be there right now. You might be buried in your shame, buried in your doubt. Might be wondering, is any of this real? I, I get it. And it's in the text. Even the most enthusiastic followers of Jesus can go through these seasons. And we're going to find, as we get to 21, you know, chapter 21, this powerful restoration story where Peter begins to understand his identity as one who's just loved by Jesus and sent to feed the sheep. And, and there's this beautiful marriage of love of Christ and love of the, of the church and all that. But we're not there yet. I'm, we, have to, we have to just dangle right here in the darkness with Peter because it's real. And it's where a lot of people are. But I just want to give you my testimony is that Jesus met me in the deepest darkness and he did not leave me there. And he won't leave you there either. You know, we'll never really love Jesus until we come to the end of our rope and we experience his grace. And so if you're striving today, I would say, stop. You don't need to impress him. Just come to him and receive his grace. If you're buried today in your shame, in your doubt, just call upon his name. He is a living God and he hears your prayer. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we close today, I'm going to pause here and I'm just going to ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to every person, every person in this room, every person online who's listening to this message right now as we pause. I'm just going to ask every person to, you ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to tell you what he wants to say to you right now. And then I'll close.
Holy Spirit, thank you for speaking to us, for hearing us, and uh, for prompting us as you have today. We just marvel at the fact that before Christ ever walked to the cross, he foresaw our betrayal and denial of him, our failures, our, our cataclysmic implosions of churches and leaders and Christians and Christian homes and Christian marriages. This is exactly why you went to the cross. Because we are not capable of saving ourselves. We're simply not capable of doing this right. But you have redeemed us by your grace. You have restored us into relationship. And you've given us hope through the power of your Holy Spirit that even in the midst of our brokenness, we can shine brightly as the light of Christ with our testimony that you accepted us and you redeemed us even in the midst of the dark night of the soul, that you met us in that deepest darkness and you did not leave us there. And I pray this would be the testimony of our church as we bear witness to who Jesus is in this great city and throughout the world. That even through the hard times of our testimony, we would shine brightly as the light of Christ to this hurting culture. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Bonus points. Uh, Would you stand and uh, let me just pray a a blessing over you. God loves you. Jesus died for you that you might never have to doubt just how much God loves you. Go now in faith, believing the gospel. And be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Amen.